Praise the Lord, everyone. I'm so glad to be in the house of the Lord today in the atmosphere that I feel in this house, that there is liberty for God to do anything. And I believe if we ready our hearts and our minds to receive of the word, that God can do anything. The scripture says that if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And often we, we put the outcome of a service on the preacher, on the one that is delivering the word, but it's also you play a part and how this is going to play out. And that when your faith meets God's word, the miraculous is produced. And uh, it is my endeavor, it's my intention that by the help of the Holy Ghost that that would just happen today. And uh, yet today is um, the sequel to the message I preached last week. How many was here last week for uh, the message? If you didn't hear it, I, I strongly suggest you go on YouTube or Facebook and go listen to part one. So this will make a little bit more sense to you. But uh, we'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 4 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. And I also want to extend um, my congratulations to my beautiful wife on her uh, birthday today. So honored and glad to have her as my mate in ministry, as my partner uh, in, pre in preaching the gospel. If you have uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, say amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet, the hope of salvation. I want to read verse number uh, 6 and 7 one more time to really emphasize this thought. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. I want to preach to you a message simply entitled, Be Sober. Beware the darkness. Be sober. Beware the darkness. Now, last week I preached, be sober, beware the line. And we were talking about um, the, the fears and the tribulation, the trials and the atrocities that befall us and how they can induce panic attacks and anxiety. And that we learned last week that sobriety involves one having uh, calm and having collection of one's spirit and having self-control and self-command. Today we're going to talk along those lines, but from a different angle about a different aspect of sobriety and about bewaring the darkness that often robs us of that sobriety. And by the help of the Holy Ghost, I believe something amazing is going to happen here today if your hearts are ready. Let us pray, O oh God. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your blessings and for all that you do. We thank you, Lord, for your presence that is here with us. And I pray, O oh God, that the spirit of sobriety would so grip and grasp our hearts, our minds, our souls, our spirits, that we would fully be aware, O oh God, of your presence, that we'd fully obey and walk in your presence and not stumble and fall, even though the enemy tries to ensnare and entrap us. May your presence, O oh God, guide and direct us. Bless this service. Open our hearts to you today. We thank you and bless you and enjoy. Jesus' name, let the church living God say, Amen. You may be seated. So the passage I read is from the book of Thessalonians, and 
as I said earlier, that today I want to talk about sobriety, but not from the aspect of self-command in, in relation to fear or into a trial or to a tribulation where there is intense suffering and persecution, but on the, as the other aspect of it. One way, there are two ways you can measure the character of a, of a person, one of which is by putting him through a trial or through a test or through immense pain and suffering and see how he responds. But there's, an other, there's another aspect of that uh, test of one's character, which is how does a person respond to pleasure? If you really want to test someone's character, remove all limits, remove all restrictions, and see what they do. Because without limits, restrictions, or accountability, or judgment, you then begin to get the full assessment of someone's character, of what they really are like, and what they really want. And so now in this... Uh, passage of scripture, the apostle Paul warns his audience to be sober and to be watchful and not to be drunken. There are several questions I want to answer in this message, one of which is what is the significance of the darkness and the night versus the light and the day? And secondly, what does Paul mean to be asleep and drunk? And thirdly, what does it mean to watch and be sober within this context? For us to fully understand what is going on here, we need to truly understand what's going on with the church of Thessalonica to whom Paul is writing. Paul, uh, he basically started this church on his second missionary journey. We find this in Acts chapter 17 verse 1 that he had just come from Philippi after being in prison. As you know the story that while he was in prison that Paul and Silas, they prayed and praised God and the foundations were shaken and they were set free and the jailer was was baptized and believe in God. They're now traveling throughout the country and they are now coming to the city of Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17 verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphilius and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few, a synagogue of the Jews. So, uh, so the thing is that we see here is that the Apostle Paul was there for a, a Approximately three weeks, three to four weeks roughly, was not there for a very long time. And he was preaching and teaching the word of God, teaching people about the gospel of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But at the end of those three Sabbaths, those three weeks roughly, uh, there was an interruption. There was a disturbance. His time there in instructing these new believers who had just come to a faith in Christ was cut short because of the Jews causing trouble. Look here in verse number five. Verse number five. But the Jews which believed not moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of, a base, of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city in an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. So the people now have been robbed of Paul's uh, teaching and also of Silas's teaching and influence and because of this interference from the Jews, his message to the believers was cut short and he tried to go back. He had to leave the city. If you read the rest of the chapter, he had to leave the city immediately because of all the uproar that was going on. And so he left the city immediately and he tried everything he could to get back to the city to teach these young believers. Now understand this. You've just come to a believing uh, faith in Christ. You just heard the gospel. You've responded to it. Your, your new pastor is there. He's teaching you, and you're with him for about three weeks, and then he bails on you. <laughs> now you're by yourself, and you're in a hostile atmosphere where everyone around you is, is 
has a lot of animosity towards the gospel and is trying to make it illegal and is trying to remove it. You have no leadership. You have no resources. And your pastors have just left you. And so now Paul is naturally a little bit concerned about these new believers. He's only had about three weeks to teach and to preach to them, to give them some information as to how to believe in Christ. And he tries his absolute best to get back to this church. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 18. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, uh, talking about this. He says, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. So now he has this new group of believers. They just come to Christ. They're by themselves. They have no pastor that's there. Their pastor leadership, gone. And he's trying to get back to them, but Satan has hindered him. So now Paul was concerned that the church would turn away from the faith with so little discipleship, leadership, and persecution from the Jews. Now, thankfully, though, the church hadn't done so, had not backslidden, had not left their faith in Christ despite these factors. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 says this, For this cause, when I can no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. But now when Timotheus came from, from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us as we also to see you. So now here's the thing. The church is doing good despite the fact they have no pastor. The one who's just told them about the gospel is left. And despite the persecution from the Jews and despite the devil uh, wreaking havoc um, amongst the church, they're still holding their faith. However, this does not mean that the church does not have issues. So this is a new church, a baby church. They're just learning the, the, the fundamentals of the faith. And they were lacking particularly in their understanding in the, the gospel and all the aspects of what it really means to be a follower of Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 says this. Paul was concerned and he says, Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. So now here's the thing. The church, even with what little information they had, even with what little uh, training and discipleship they had, they were maintaining their faith, but they had some issues. The main issue which drives the writing of this epistle is correcting particularly the church's understanding of Christ's return. His, uh, trying, he's trying to correct their understanding of Jesus Christ coming back because what is going on here is that the church, they've heard the preaching of Paul, they've heard about the resurrection, they've heard about, the, about eternal life, and they've heard that Jesus is one day going to return, but they don't understand what all that entails, what happens when, when, when we return. Now, here's the thing. The believers are in a state of confusion because while Paul was away, uh, some of the believers that were in the church, they died. They are now grieving over the loss of some of their members, of some of their close loved ones. And they are confused as to what happens. They believe then that when Jesus returns, their loved ones are going to miss out on it. And they're not going to go in the rapture. That they're, they're asleep, they're dead, they're not going to make it. And so now they're getting sorrowful and they are depressed and they have now lost their hope. And because of this loss of hope, the church starts to have issues and starts to have problems. The primary focus, therefore, of Paul's epistle is to then re-energize the church, to re-educate the church regarding Christ's return and what all that entails. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 says this, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, 
even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So they're thinking we're going to go to heaven and these guys are going to stay in the grave, not until perhaps a later date. We're, we have been separated from our loved ones. We have no hope of ever seeing them again. And Paul is trying to correct them and say, no, you do have a hope. I don't want you to be ignorant of what all the, the return of Christ entails. Don't be depressed. Don't be sorrowful. There is a hope for your loved ones. There is a hope that is coming where you'll be forever eternally reunited with those that you have lost. So now we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul addressing this idea regarding Christ's return. The thing is, this book has more about Christ's return than any of Paul's epistles. Other than the book of Revelation, this really has a lot of the information that we know about Christ's return, about Christ returning in the dead and Christ rising first. That's right here in this passage. About how the trumpet of God will be sounded, the archangel is going to sound the trumpet. All that's here in 1 Thessalonians because he was trying to correct their misunderstanding regarding his return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. But of the times and the, and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that that day, that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So now Paul is then is had to remind them who they really are and to instruct them as to how to avoid falling into despair and into darkness. Because when you don't have any hope, when you have no hope in the resurrection of Christ, or you have no hope in his return, you're going to fall into darkness. You're going to fall into depression. You're going to fall into all sorts of problems and troubles. And so now he needed to remind them that you're not of the darkness. That you're not of this idea, one that has no sorrow, that the world, they have no hope. They have nothing beyond their natural senses. They have nothing to hope in, in a resurrection or seeing the afterlife or seeing their loved ones again. But you do. And so now he's instructing them as to how to avoid falling into this darkness. And therefore now this darkness is partially a condition where there is deception, ignorance, confusion, or misunderstanding as it relates to God's righteousness. And in, in this particular text, his return and, his, and establishing his kingdom on the earth. We see here now in verse number 4 where it says, Brother, um, uh, where it says But ye brethren are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So Paul then states to his audience, like, look guys, I know that I told you partially about Christ's return. My sermon got cut off because there was a riot that was there. So they knew that Jesus was coming and that his coming was to be unexpected, but they did not understand all that was entailed when he, when he would return. And it's because of this that the church didn't have hope in regards to their loved ones and they were in darkness ensued. And now this brings us to our main text here. I'm going somewhere with this. Verse number six, therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober for they that sleep sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night but let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and of love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Now there's two things here that Paul is telling his audience. One, he tells them first to watch and secondly he tells them to be sober. He says this to counteract the potential development of two spiritual conditions as a result of being in darkness. When you're in darkness and you have no hope, there's a lot of funny things that can start to happen. The two things that happen when we are in darkness particularly is slumber and drunkenness. 
Whenever someone is depressed, they have a tendency to sleep a lot because they don't want to be conscious and aware of the trouble that they're dealing with. And secondly, besides slumber, is intoxication. That instead we run to some outlet to give us pleasure to counteract the darkness or counteract the hopelessness that is there. And so Paul tells them, I said, I want you to be sober. I want you to watch. I want you to to be alert and to be aware because you do have a hope. Christ is returning. Do not give up. Do not give out. And do not give under. So there are two states here. I want to talk about both states here. That one, we had this issue of going to sleep. He says, we're not of the night. And we don't sleep as those that are night. Those are in the night, they sleep. And those that are in the night, they get drunk. Those two states. And this is describing two states that I believe of people that are in the church or sometimes even those that are not in the church. Firstly, let's deal with the sleep issue. That the word, To be spiritually asleep is to be completely unaware of one's sinful estate and God's righteousness. When you are asleep, you are unconscious. You are completely unaware of your surroundings or what is going on around you. We see Paul in writing to the Ephesians. In Ephesians uh, chapter 5 verse 11, he says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. I want to tell you something right here today. One, that you have a hope. For those of you that don't have a hope, don't go to sleep. Don't fall asleep on God. Don't lose your consciousness and your awareness of, of the treasures and the things that God has to offer you. So that people there are in, there are, are uh, that are asleep uh, they're in a state of not being aware of one their sinful condition uh, they are not aware that they're in dire need of a savior and they need someone to wake them up or to revive them to righteousness uh, and the bible says that the way that we awaken people is that we give them light uh, he says wherefore he saith, awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead and christ shall give thee light uh, and so the thing is now we need to what we need to wake up uh, is that we need a light source to stimulate our dead senses that are dead to the idea of righteousness and goodness. We need a light source to illuminate the darkness so that we can see clearly what is right and what is wrong. And the way that you get a light source is that you go to the word of God. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 105, that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The Bible says in Psalm 119, 130, that the entrance of thy words, it giveth light and it giveth understanding unto the simple. When you're in darkness, you are ignorant of your sinful state and only the word of God can wake someone up and wake their consciousness up to what is right and what is wrong and so he tells the Thessalonians he says don't go to sleep don't become numb to the things of God instead you need to be watchful need to be awake and the only way you can be awake is if you have light and the only way you get light is by getting word and that's why we need the word of God preached in the church that's why we need the preaching of the word of God to wake the saints up to righteousness 
Word of God is the light source which awakens man's consciousness to sin and repentance and enables him to seek Christ for redemption. To, to overcome the effect of spiritual slumber, we must walk in the light. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanseth us from all sin. We've got to walk in the light of God's word, obeying his commandments. I heard, I can't remember which preacher it was that said this about walking in the light and walking in darkness. That if when you're walking in the light, you're walking towards the light. You're walking towards the light. When I walk towards a light source, my shadow is behind me. Darkness is behind me. But if I don't face the light, my shadow is in front of me and darkness is in front of me. When you repent of your dead works and you turn to the light, your past is behind you. The darkness is behind you. Our problem is we continue to turn our eyes away from Jesus and look at our failures, look at our mistakes. And now you're walking in darkness. You're walking in ignorance. Now, here's the thing. Now, this is where I really want to get to. It is not enough to just be awake spiritually. Because Paul goes on to say that we must also be sober. There are people who don't lack illumination or the word, but instead they have a problem with intoxication. What I mean by this is, you have churches, okay, the word is being preached. They have light. But they're still falling and stumbling. Not because they cannot see, but they cannot see properly. They cannot see properly because they're under the influence of some sort of substance that is altering their perception of reality. And because of that, they do not have balance. So now, even though, let's say you're surrounded by darkness, you get the word, you now have a candle, you now have a lamp, you now have something to illuminate you. Darkness may still be around you, but you yourself have light. But even though you have a light to kind of see what your next steps are, if you're intoxicated, even though you have light, you will still fall and you will still stumble. So a drunk person may stumble and fall, not because they can't see, but because their perception is skewed or is corrupted. Romans 13 verse 13 says this, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put you on the Lord Jesus Christ and make that provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So we got people in the church, you're getting good word. But you're still operating under the influences of things that are in your environment. You're drinking substances from what maybe what you watch, maybe a relationship that you're in. And even though you've got the word of God to give you light, to give you illumination, you're still intoxicated and you're stumbling over things. You're falling into sin. Now let's, let's do what's called a little sobriety test. Because police officer Jesus Christ has pulled you over. He kind of sees you swerve a little bit too much up to the other lane, turning without signaling. And he's concerned you might have a wreck with somebody and mess somebody up. So he pulls you over and he's looking at your credentials. Let me see your license and registration. Are you registered with the kingdom of heaven? Have you been licensed to operate in this ministry? And then he's a bit concerned and so he decides to offer a sobriety test. So he says, I want you to step out of the vehicle. 
Now, police officers, when they do a sobriety test, they do three different tests typically. Well, it could be three to four. The first one is the eye test. They will take a flashlight or a pen, and they will hold it in front of your eyes, and they'll move it from side to side, and they say, well, I want you to follow this object with your eyes. And as, as they do this, the officer is watching the person's eyes, and if they notice what's called a, a jerk in the eyes, when it gets to the, the, the maximum length of the, of the sight, moving to the right or the left, the eye will jerk suddenly because it, can't, it doesn't have the muscle strength or the focus to hold its position on the object that it's looking on. And even so, if our eyes jerk away from Jesus when he shows us the light of his word, then you might be under the influence of something. God said, watch this. Watch this. Watch my word. Watch my light. And your eyes are jerking like this. Over here. And you can't keep your focus on what God is trying to say. You might be operating under the influence of something, some substance you, you have, some show you watch, something you saw on Instagram or Facebook, and you are not sober. And that's why the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore that I be single, focus, thy whole body shall be full of light. He's holding up a light source. Your eyes can't focus on it, so no light is getting through your eye into your spirit. Verse 23, but if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. We need a sobriety test in the church to see if we can keep our eyes on Jesus. When the man of God says you need to repent and turn from your sins, do your eyes trick away to, some, to a drink or to a show on Netflix? Do your eyes trick away from the righteousness of God? God is calling you to be sober. Number two. Police officer Jesus has another test for you. It's called the walk a straight line test. And when the officer says, I want you to look, I want you to walk a straight line. Heel the toe. I want you to put your foot in front of you like this, heel the toe. And I want you to walk this many steps. They'll usually give you some instructions about how many steps, nine or ten steps. And they say, Walk this many steps, and when you get to the end of the line, I want you to turn back and walk towards me. And the thing is that whenever this happens, if the person is like keep the balance. Or they take too many steps and not following instructions. The officer will then say, you might be operating under the influence of something. And God is, is asking you today, is your life balanced? Are you staying on the narrow path of righteousness? And are you following my instructions? I only told you to take nine steps. You done took 12 steps. You went way beyond what I said. And God is saying obedience is better than sacrifice. And I want you to follow what's in my word. James chapter 1 verse 8 says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You're, you're unbalanced. You can't seem to keep things straight. You can't keep your relationships straight. You can't keep your job straight. You can't keep your prayer life straight or reading the words straight because there's unbalance that is there. You're operating under the intoxication of an influence of something. 
Bible says in Matthew 7, 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Where is the church that's walking the way of holiness? Where is the church that wants to stay in the straight and narrow, and is not trying to push the boundaries to see how worldly they can be, while still making into heaven? Where is the church that stopped playing hokey pokey with God, putting one foot in the church and sliding it back out, and putting the one foot in the church and shaking it all about uh, and doing the hokey pokey and thinking that's what it's all about uh, when God is saying get in the church and stay there stay in holiness uh, stay in righteousness uh, stay in prayer and fasting uh, stay in my word there's no balance because you're not sober now these two tests they are telling but they are not always the most accurate there is a third test that officer Jesus wants to give to the saints. It's called a breathalyzer test. A breathalyzer test, there's a device that the officer will give unto the subject and have him breathe through it. And this device is able to detect the concentration of alcohol that is in the bloodstream. It's able to do it through your breath because the alcohol gets in your breath through the bloodstream. And the thing is this, we can tell how much intoxication you have by how you speak by what you say all that gossip you say is because you're under the influence of something all that back talk and all that complaining you've been doing I'm sorry but you've done failed the breathalyzer test there's too much something in your bloodstream Matthew 12 verse 34 says oh generation of vipers How can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The breath that you release into the atmosphere, the Holy Spirit can detect all the intoxicants that are in your heart. The bitterness, the unforgiveness, the hatred, the malice, the immorality, the sexual promiscuity. He can detect it in your praise. He can detect it in your prayers. He can detect it in your complaints. It's not enough just to be awake, but he wants his body to be sober. This is the crux of the intoxication. It's about what is in your bloodstream. What is in your spirit. And so many of us, we have been intoxicated by the poisonous, venomous substances of this world that we are operating under the influence and we're trying to hide it. We're trying to act like we're sober when we're not. I want to give you some facts about alcohol. Scott, uh, S. Scott Fitzgerald said, first you take a drink, then the drink takes a drink, then the drink takes you. Be careful what you're drinking. Be careful what you're watching. Be careful what you're listening to, what you're engaging in. Here's what happens when someone gets drunk. When someone begins to take an alcohol, the alcohol begins to block the receptors of the brain, particularly the NMDA receptors and the GABA receptors. The GABA receptors controls your behavior. The NMDA receptors affects your energy and your memory. And there are people when they get drunk, there's some people who get so drunk, they're called blackouts, where they've been drunk for hours and they have no memory of what they did. 
uh, when I was researching this, I found a, a comment from someone in one of these alcohol videos that's telling more information about alcohol. That This person, they said, they got drunk. They were going to go home. Their house is only 15 minutes away by bus ride. They're supposed to just walk about just across the street to the bus stop, get in the bus and go home. The thing is, when he woke up the next morning, he looked at his GPS and realized he'd been wandering around the, the town for over two hours. And he said he wandered in parts of town he's never even been to, and he has no idea how he got there. Has no memory of anything he did. Here's the thing, folks. Whenever we get into sin, it can block your memory of how things are. It can mess with how you perceive reality. And you don't even know, why did I even do that? Why did I cuss that person out? Why did I even engage in this stuff? Because your memory is gone because you're under the influence of something. It literally blocks the receptors. It blocks and slows the transmission of signals in the brain. It impairs the brain to be able to operate. And then it causes you to release dopamine, which is a, a chemical that makes you experience pleasure. And it removes the inhibition of your will and of your desires. Everything that you secretly wanted to do suddenly starts coming off because now you think you have no accountability and you have nothing that's going to stop you from doing what you're doing. Now what's interesting is this, is that alcohol is also a diuretic, which means it makes you go to the bathroom. The reason why it does that is because it's toxic. Your body does not want this. It knows it's bad for you. And the only way to get rid of it is to urinate. And oftentimes what happens is, is that people who get drunk and they have a hangover, they have all these symptoms of headaches and all that stuff because they're dehydrated. Because their body's trying to get rid of what they put into them. How many times have you binged on something and it took more from you than it gave? And it, you woke up with a headache and with a hangover and wondering why I did that. And you've been drained and depleted. Your spirit is now in a worse state. And again, we go to this stuff because we're in darkness. And we go to this because we have no hope. We forget about what Jesus gives us, so we look to some sort of alternative to deal with the problem, to numb our senses. Now, what's really interesting here, as I was saying earlier about the whole sobriety thing, because people have come up with all sorts of different tricks to get sober quickly. How to make a hangover not last very long. Well, drink lots of coffee. You know, take a nap. Do all, do all this stuff. Did you know there is absolutely no way to lower your blood alcohol content once you've taken it? Other than time. What scientists have discovered? You can take coffee and caffeine or whatever you want to. And it can limit the effects of the drugs or of the alcohol. It can make you feel more alert. But the concentration of the alcohol in your blood has not changed. And there are people in the church. Again, you have been, you're drunk. Your alcohol limit is going way over here. And you're doing good things to cover up the fact that maybe you are operating under the influence of something you should not be operating under. Well, I'll just, I'll just read my Bible a little more. I'll, I'll praise. I'll say hallelujah three times a little louder this time so people don't know what I did last night. I'm alert. Hallelujah. No, you're not sober. You might be a bit more aware and more alert. You got some caffeine in your blood system. But you still have the same concentration of alcohol. You still have the same sin in your life. You still have the same issue in your life. And if you don't deal with this alcohol concentration issue, it's going to kill you. God is telling us that we must be sober. We must be sober. So now how do we deal with this whole sobriety thing? How do we deal with this blood alcohol concentration thing? Now remember Paul said, he said those that sleep, they sleep in the night. And the way that we counteract sleepless, uh, sleepiness is with a light source, and that is the Word. The way that we counteract drunkenness is with prayer.
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look at this. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The only thing that can counteract and make someone sober is the Spirit of God. That's why I can preach so I'm blue in the face, but if the Spirit of God does not get to your mind and waken your consciousness and remove these things out of your life, you will not be sober. You need the Spirit of God to fill you. The other thing is, the other thing that will help sobriety is that song's very simple. It's called abstinence. Stop drinking. <laughs> Stop drinking. Stop. Otherwise, the, the blood alcohol concentration, guess what? It's just going to keep going back up to where it was. And you'll still be stumbling and staggering and doing all the crazy things that you've been doing. The way to really remove a buzz or to remove a hangover, to remove drunkenness, is abstinence. Abstinence. Now, look what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And look at verse number 2. I want to start at verse number 2. I want to put that on the screen. Thought it in my notes. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Verse 4. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. The way that you stop getting drunk is that you've got to walk in holiness and abstain from the things of this world. If you don't, then guess what? You're going to be drunk again. Now, is that easy? No, it's not always easy. But that's why you have the body of Christ here to help you and to keep you accountable so that you would not fall back into the things of this world. So there's two things that we need to understand. One, we need the word of God to awaken us out of our slumber. And secondly, we need the spirit of God to make us sober that we would not participate in the things of this world. You've got to beware the darkness. Now, understand this. These two conditions of slumber and drunkenness, they all occur because of darkness. People, they only go to sleep at night. And they get drunk in the night. And so to deal with both these conditions, you have to have something to, to get rid of the darkness, which is a saving hope in Jesus Christ. And to put on the armor of light and cast off the works of darkness. Let's stand. I'm done. Now, the thing is this. Hope, where all hope is, is an expectation. It's a desire. And if you don't have a hope or an expectation for something, it's not going to happen. And one of the things that we have in the church, the church is either asleep or it's drunk because we've lost our hope. We turn to sleep or we turn to something to intoxicate us, pleasure, because we've lost our hope, our expectation of Christ's return. Because if you have an expectation of his return, then you'll clean up. I talked about this in the message I preached, uh, I think a year or so ago. It's called, Do You Have This Hope? And I talked about how hope is linked to holiness and purification. Because if you have an expectation that God is going to show up, you'll clean up. So yesterday, uh, I took my wife out on a date, which is awesome. But, uh, <laughs> and my mother was coming over to watch the kids. 
Now, I tell you right now, my house was a disaster. It was a hot mess. And because we expected her arrival to be imminent, to be soon, we had to clean up very quickly. <laughs> we were vacuuming, picking up old crunched goldfish off the floor, putting toys away, picking up clothes, making beds. Because we did not want, I did not want my mother to see my house in such an estate. Do you want God to see your house in such an estate? Your behavior will change when you expect someone's going to see you. You're at work. You're getting kind of, you know, your mind's starting to drift. Suddenly you're getting on your phone. <laughs> you're going on a website or something. Or you're starting to nod off. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> you're this bad. Oh. What? What happened? Because the boss was there, you started to shape up. Guess what? The boss is here. The boss is here, so now it's time for us to shape up. If you expect to see Jesus, then you'll clean up. You'll get ready to, to see him. You'll get ready to perceive him. Now, here's the good part. At least right now, anyway, when, when you come to see Jesus, Jesus wants to clean you up first. He wants to clean you up. You're saying, I can't clean myself up. Congratulations. That's the, that's the estate of all of the entire human race. God wants to clean you up. God wants to wake you up. God wants to make you sober and give you your life back. But that only comes when you can acknowledge the fact that I'm dirty, I need a shower. And I need God to help me clean up. To the sinner, to those of you that don't know Jesus, I offer you this opportunity to awaken unto righteousness. You've been sleeping in the filth of sin. You've been sleeping in the darkness of wickedness. And the light is here. God's word has been preached to waken you up to it. Secondly, the Spirit of God is here to remove all of the intoxicants that has poisoned your life. Perhaps the intoxicant is a trauma. Perhaps it's abuse. Perhaps it's some hurt that you've had that's been poisoned, that's, that's affecting how you walk, affecting how you talk, affecting how you live your life. And God is saying, I want to, give, to make you sober by my Spirit. That supernaturally I can remove the, the alcoholic content that's in your bloodstream. And you want to know how he does it? It's called a blood transfusion. There was so much alcohol in my blood, I couldn't get it out, so Jesus gave all of his blood. And he transferred it into me. And when I did, when that happened, I became sober. My alcoholic content went to zero because the blood had been applied to my life. I open these altars unto you today to find sobriety in Christ. If you're tired of being intoxicated, you're tired of stumbling and falling over and tripping over the things of this life, Jesus offers unto you sobriety. He offers unto you His Spirit to purify your heart, to purge you of dead works. Come and dine, the Master calleth, come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table all the time. He who fed the multitude and he who turned water into wine. To the hungry calleth now, come and dine. God wants you to be under the influence of his spirit. And that only happens when you yield yourself and surrender yourself to him. So I offer you this opportunity to come. 
be sober. Beware the darkness. Don't allow the darkness of this world, the depression news that you hear on the radio or hear on the television, to throw you into a state of hopelessness where all you want to do is sleep. All you want to do is drink. But no, we have a hope beyond this life, and that hope is in Jesus, that if we should die, we shall be forever eternally united with him. And that if if those who have died before us, we will be reunited with them. Be sober today, church, and beware the darkness. Walk in the light, even as he is in the light. God bless you.